namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sanghang namasami We come to chapter 5 now, the second exit point from the cycle. And uh, once again, um, I'm uh, aligning these uh, four exit points with the Four Noble Truths. So this is, um, uh, the second exit is uh, uh, aligned with the Second Noble Truth. This bhikkhus is the Noble Truth of the cause of Dukkha. The craving which causes rebirth and is bound up with pleasure and lust, ever seeking fresh delight, now here, now there, namely craving for sense pleasure, craving for existence, craving for annihilation. This is the noble truth of the cause of dukkha, and this cause of dukkha is to be abandoned. Pahatabhanti. Continuing with the theme of ways to liberate the heart from the cycles of addiction, I would like to look at a second escape point. This second exit point is related to the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, Dukkha Samudaya. You can come forward, Atsuko, you don't have to. There are cushions, mats, there are for the humans. Sometimes I feel like I'm radioactive. (laughs) The front lines are always... Either, or I need to shower more often, so <laughs> could easily, more likely to be the the last bit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Everyone's settled in. So, the cause of suffering is defined by the Buddha as the quality of craving, tanha, literally thirst, or trishna in uh, Sanskrit. So it like being thirsty for, for water, it's, that's what the word tanha literally means. Just as with the first noble truth, the Buddha gave a description of how this truth should be worked with, he named the task involved with the second noble truth as the cause of dukkha needs to be abandoned, relinquished, let go of. Idang dukkha samudayo aryasachang pahatabanti. So the word to let go... Uh, is uh, pahanati, that, the verb of to relinquish, to let go, uh, to abandon, is a pahanati, so that uh, is a sort of key um, term uh, in, this, uh, in this respect. The cause of dukkha is craving. That the cause should be abandoned, let go of, is probably the most common theme of Buddhist meditation, letting go. The importance of this teaching is based on the Buddha's advice on how to relate to craving and to the end and to end suffering. Furthermore, to highlight this as the centerpiece of his Dhamma instruction, he repeatedly stated, "What I describe now as formally is dukkha and the ending of dukkha," and that's a, a, a teaching or a phrase, a comment that the Buddha makes many times in the teachings, uh, in the Sanyutanikaya, in the section twenty-two, in the, also section forty-four, many many places. So uh, when, it's been mentioned before in these readings, but one of the things that is a sort of characteristic, particularly of, of the Southern Buddhist school, is the Buddha's understatement. He's not glamorizing the goal of the holy life. He's not saying happiness forever, or yeah, you'll, be, um, tran- yeah, you'll experience transcendent, transcendent bliss for eternity, or this is the um, realization of the, of the, the uh, infinite absolute and such like. He doesn't use that kind of, occasionally he does, but mostly he doesn't use that kind of gra- glamorizing language or that he doesn't sort of talk things up. It's a very understated, um, uh, it's, not a, it's more of a kind of sp- uh, a sparrow dhamma rather than a peacock dhamma. You know, it's kind of not a sort of bright and colorful promise, but rather it's understated and, and so 
there are places where you know the Buddha says you know this is the the highest human um, say potential that we have, but um, it's more it's understate. The whole tone is deliberately understated, and it's pointing to the work that needs to be done rather than look at the rewards you're going to get if you <laughs> if you if you carry this out. You know, look at what this look at what is there at the end of the uh, at the end of the path, but rather. This is what you need to do to stay on the path and, and to travel to the end of it. So that and that's a, a very strong characteristic of the of the Southern Buddhist uh, tradition and uh, the the Pali Canon generally. And so that uh, that can be a bit disappointing. Or maybe we we like teachings that are a bit more inspiring or, or sort of uh, have, have that kind of um, uh, quality of, of uh, promise. Or you know, uh, brightening or gladdening, but uh, I feel over the years I realised it was a very deliberate approach. The, the Buddha's quite consciously understating things, and so that you're not drawn into it by a uh, by being sort of dazzled by you know happiness forever um, or you know uh, infinite bliss for eternity, but rather um, it's the the attention goes on well, yes. Th- those those ideas are, are nice, but right now, <laughs> you can use the the mats and the cushions are for the humans, please. There, there. We'll keep looking at you till you come and sit on the cushions. <laughs> so, uh, so it's very deliberately understated, um, and so that the attention goes on to the work that needs to be done rather than being sort of uh, uh, say taken up with the. the the aspect of promise, and and we talk, uh, we're talking quite a bit about bhavatanna vipavatanna, because it's so easy for that uh, that aspiration, or, or sort of leaning towards a, a a bright and shiny promise, that you don't notice where your where your feet are, <laughs> you trip over your own feet, or you take a wrong turning, uh, you get caught up in the becoming urge of, of that promise over there that you don't notice of. What you need to do in order to stay on track and, and make and make the progress that's really going to make a difference. So that's a a, a very um, say helpful to understand. That's a, a very deliberate um, uh, say style of teaching. A a, um, a, a uh, what do they call a um, uh, a kind of method of uh, a ped- pedagogical. Uh, Use a very long word. <laughs> it's a kind of pedagogical uh, style that the Buddha uses very deliberately, um, and uh, so why he also wouldn't, when people ask what, what's the um, uh, what, what happens to an enlightened being at the death of the body, the Buddha just wouldn't speak about that. He said, yeah, that uh, and that uh, they uh, people try to persuade him to talk about uh, these sort of descriptions of you know, ultimate reality and such like and he would just say you know i teach suffering in the end of suffering <laughs> so which can be a bit of a disappointment but uh over time you see what it does it helps to undercut that becoming urge and the, the tendency to to um say focus on a a, a beautiful brilliant uh, inspiring ideal but not be carrying out the necessary work in order for that ideal to be actualized so he was a very pragmatic teacher, very practical, and so that his his approach was was uh, pragmatic rather than idealistic. I would say. When Ajahn Sumedho was a novice in Thailand more than fifty years ago, he studied and contemplated the Four Noble Truths very deeply, as he has done ever since. At that time, he was particularly helped by Venerable Nyanati Loka's book, The Word of the Buddha, which was published many, many decades ago, and uh, it's just a collection of the essential uh, teachings from the Pali Canon, very very little commentary at all, it's mostly just the, the sutta quotations about the, the Four Noble Truths, the word of the Buddha. It became clear, and uh, he read it 80 times, in, uh, it was the only book he had, apparently, in his, he's living in a hut in um, uh, this uh, little monastery in Nongkai, uh, a meditation monastery, as a, mostly they uh, practice the Mahasi or meditation technique, um, what Numpanao, I think it was called in uh, in Nongkai, 
And uh, yeah, he had this one book and he read it 80 times. Eight zero. Not 18, 80 times. So he really took it in. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and also he had uh, uh, a lot of insight during that time, just using that, uh, and he realized that this um, was all he really, in terms of information, <laughs> after he'd been you know, studying for years at the uh, University of Washington, University of California in Berkeley, and that you know, master's degree in, in Asian history and such like, said, okay, this is all you need to know. That was this, this sense of, this, is the, this information is as much information as really required. And um, spent that year literally in his hut um, uh, uh, practicing with these, these essential teachings. It became clear to the young novice Sumato, he was, before he was a bhikkhu, he was a samanera that, for that year, and then he, his um, bhikkhu ordination was at the end of that, that first year in Nongkai. It, was very, it became clear to the young novice Sumato that letting go, quote-unquote, was the central task of Dhamma practice. So he made a great emphasis on this over the subsequent years then, and also over the subsequent years of his training. As Ajahn Sumato has a natural ability to, to visualize, he would sometimes write these words in his imagination, let go, let go, let go, in big green letters with red flashing lights around them. And... I have vague memories of him describing the colours, the colour scheme. I, I couldn't, you have to ask him when you get a chance, but I, I couldn't swear that it's exactly big green letters with red flashing lights, but that was how I remembered him uh, talking, how I remember him talking about it. So he was literally sort of paint those in his inner sphere, let go, let go, let go, like with sort of neon lights around to remind him what needed to be done. I don't have that kind of an ability. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I'm more verbal than, than visual. But uh, he has a, a very, uh, a very, uh, say, a great skill at at uh, visualization. He can adjust colors. He can so he would just fill his mind with like purple or pink and say, no, 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 pink. That pink's a bit, it's a bit too yellowish. We need to have a more purple pink. He can adjust the colors, the color mix. Amazing to me. <laughs> he, he he has that ability. The Buddha underscored the importance of letting go in the shorter discourse on the destruction of craving, the Chula Tanha Sankhaya Sutta, I, I mentioned before. And this is the, the key passage uh, at the beginning of that sutta on, on this principle. And this is uh, the god uh, Indra, Saka, uh, asking the, speaking to the Buddha and asking this question. Venerable Sir, how in brief is a bhikkhu liberated through the ending of craving? one who has reached the ultimate end, the ultimate security from bondage, the ultimate holy life, the ultimate goal, and is foremost among gods and humans. The Buddha replies, Here, ruler of the gods, it's when a bhikkhu has heard nothing is worth holding on to. And bhikkhu in this term means of a meditator, spiritual practitioner, it's a more sort of generalized term for a um, spiritual uh, aspirant. It's when a bhikkhu has heard nothing is worth holding on to. Sabe dhamma na lang abhinivesaya. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth holding on to, they directly know all things. Directly knowing all things, they completely understand all things. Having completely understood all things, when they experience any kind of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, they abide contemplating impermanence, dispassion, cessation, and letting go in those feelings. And that's uh, uh, anicca, and then viraga, niroda, vosagga. Uh, vosagga is what it, uh, translated as letting go. It also means to abandon or to relinquish. Vosagga. So they abide contemplating impermanence, anicca, dispassion, viraga, cessation, niroda, and letting go, vosagga, in those teachings. Contemplating thus, they don't grasp at anything in the world. Not grasping, they are not agitated. Not being agitated, they personally realize Nibbāna. They understand, rebirth is ended, the spiritual journey has been completed, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming into any state of existence. And the astute amongst you, will, and those who were here yesterday, will uh, uh, recognize that that's got a close connection with that passage from 
the um, Datu Vibhanga Sutta, the uh, the uh, exposition of the elements about a sage at peace who is not born, uh, is not born, does not age, does not die. They are not shaken, they are, and they are not agitated. For there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. Not being born, how could they age? Not aging, how could they die? Not dying, how could they be shaken? Not being shaken, how should they be agitated? So that um, that uh, that quality of inner stillness. Um, uh, free the heart free of grasping there isn't that agitation or um, uh, uh, the um, that kind of um, as a as a way of representing a profound stability the heart is is unshakable uh, the uh, akupa is unshakable kupa is to be shaken akupa is to be unshaken akupa may be muti unshakable is my deliverance also, um, uh, just to um, uh, mention, this is also the passage I was referring to, nothing is worth holding on to, that um, I was mentioning about the Vimalakirti Sutra the other day, about how that, uh, there's a strange relationship between that Chula Tanha Sankhya Sutta and the Vimalakirti Sutra. So the Vimalakirti Sutra is a, a famous teaching from the, the Northern Buddhist uh, school, and uh, but there, and not only is that um, uh, that passage that comes from, or is, is uh, uh, the same phrase as appears in this sutta, but also uh, Indra appears in the um, or, or, or sh- uh, Chakra uh, is, uh, is the name that's used in uh, the Vimalakirti Sutra, the Saka in Pali, Chakra in Sanskrit. Um, and I, I thought I'd just read out this particular passage where that that phrase appears. Also, it's uh, um, the Buddha uses the nickname for for Saka, uh, which is Kosia, which literally means the owl, like the bird that the, the flies at night time and catches mice. And so. so his nickname was Kosia, and that is also used in the Vimalakirti Sutra. Chakra, the, the nickname Kosika, Kosika, is used to refer to the Buddha talks to. Uh, to um, uh, to chakra, uh, or I think that the uh, uh, chakra appears in the in the sutra, and is used. Uh, and that nickname is used for for chakra. Um, and there, there's there's other parallels as well. There's probably room for a PhD. Anyone wants to Buddhist have a, a at least write an article or probably get a PhD out of the relationship between the the shorter discourse on the destruction of craving and on the Vimalakirti Sutra. So this is uh, called the, this chapter is, uh, this is the beginning of chapter six, the inconceivable liberation. And as I mentioned, Venerable Sariputta is a, what they call a fall guy. He's, he's made fun of uh, over and over again. He's a sort of archetype of the Arahants who are being um, sort of uh, uh, kind of made fun of um, in the, throughout this sutra. That the Arahantship is... Uh, being looked upon as a bit uh, somewhat small-minded, which is from the Southern Buddhist tradition, the perspective is is totally weird. But it's, it's got a bit of a defamatory tone to the Vimalakirti Sutra. It's called mythic defamation, defamation, or deformation, like defaming or kind of making fun of or putting down, um, as the Buddha often does with the Brahmins. The Northern Buddhists tended to do with the Southern Buddhists. I realise I'm being recorded, but it's a well well attested and, and a much recognised fact. So, so, um, uh, so, Venerable Sariputra has come with a group of monks. They've been invited to have a meal offering at Vimalakirti's home. Vimalakirti is a householder. Uh, when they when he arrives at the home, thereupon the Venerable Sariputra had this thought. Uh, Sariput, uh, Sariputra had the thought: there is not even a single chair in this house. Where are these disciples and bodhisattvas going to sit? The Lichavi Vimalakirti read the thought of the Venerable Sariputra and said, Reverend Sariputra, did you come here for the sake of the Dharma or did you come here for the sake of a chair? <laughs> so there's uh, also in the, he's worried about that it's getting towards noon and this is, uh, and, uh, you know, he hasn't offered the food yet. It's getting towards noon. Yeah, when's the when's the layman going to offer the food? The all the sangha are going to go hungry. And, 
Venerable Shariputra, did you come here for food or did you come here for the Dharma? And of course the sun stops. For I think if I remember the sutra correctly, the, 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 the sun stops moving for long enough for the, for the Sangha to comfortably have their meal before <laughs> noon arrives. So just, just sort of the little kind of nuance of the sutra. Like, you don't have to worry, Venerable. Yeah, the sun happens to have stopped today. Look, the shadow is still not at noon. Yeah. So anyway, this is about chairs. <laughs> not to get too distracted. Uh, Sariputra replied, I came for the sake of the Dharma, not for the sake of a chair. <clears throat> Vimalakirti continued, Reverend Sariputra, he who is interested in the Dharma is not interested even in his own body, much less in a chair. Reverend Sariputra, he who is interested in the Dharma has no interest in matter, sensation, intellect, motivation, or consciousness. So, Rupa, Vedna, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. He has no interest in these aggregates or in the elements, earth, earth, uh, water, fire and wind, or in the sense media, i.e. in earth, time, body, mind. Interested in the Dharma, he has no interest in the realm of desire, the realm of matter, or the immaterial realm, the rupaloka or arupaloka. Interested in the Dharma, he is not interested in attachment to the Buddha, attachment to the Dharma, attachment to the Sangha. Reverend Sariputra, he who is interested in the Dharma, interested in the Dharma, is not interested in recognizing suffering, in abandoning its ori- origination, realizing its cessation, or practicing the path. So, the Four Noble Truths. So, so, uh, why? The Dharma is ultimately without formulation and without verbalization. Who verbalizes suffering should be recognized, origination should be eliminated, cessation should be realized, the path should be practiced, is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in verbalization. So he's um, setting a high bar here, a high, a high standard. Reverend Sariputra, the Dharma is calm and peaceful. Those who are engaged in production and destruction are not interested in the Dharma, are not interested in solitude, but are interested in production and destruction. Furthermore, Reverend Sariputra, the Dharma is without taint and free of defilement. He who is attached to anything, even to liberation, is not interested in the Dharma but is interested in the taint of desire. The Dharma is not an object. He who pursues objects is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in objects. The Dharma is without acceptance or rejection. He who holds on to things or lets go of things is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in holding on and letting go. The Dharma is not a secure refuge. He who enjoys a secure refuge is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in a secure refuge. The Dharma is without sign. He whose consciousness pursues signs is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in signs. The Dharma is not a society. He who seeks to associate with the Dharma is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in association. The Dharma is not a sight, a sound, a category, or an idea. He who is involved in sights, sounds, categories, and ideas is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in sights, sounds, categories, and ideas. Reverend Sariputra, The Dharma is free of compounded things and uncompounded things. He who adheres to compounded things and uncompounded things is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in in adhering to compounded things and uncompounded things. Thereupon, Reverend Sariputra, if you are interested in the Dharma, you should take no interest in anything. When Vimalakirti had spoken this discourse, 500 gods obtained the purity of the Dharma eye in viewing all things. So that phrase, if you are interested in the Dharma, you should take no interest in anything that is sabe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya. That's the, uh, the, um, the, oh, the Sanskrit version of that. So, and th- this translation was by uh, Robert Thurman. And if I remember correctly, I, I checked with him, <laughs> with Robert Thurman himself, whether that was the Sanskrit of, the, of that Pali phrase. So, um, so I did. I did check up on that. So um, it's you know, essentially let go of everything, let go of concepts of everything, even of the conditioned and the unconditioned, and the four noble truths of, as as ideas or as words. That uh, it's a uh, it, it, you know it's very skillful teaching in its own right. But it is interesting how the content of that um, uh, is reflected in the the 
this very wonderful teaching from the Middle Length Discourses. This is Sutta 37, if you want to look it up, when the Buddha says, when, uh, uh, so when you've heard, nothing is worth adhering to. That's uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's trans- and Bhikkhu Nyanamoli's translation. Uh, you directly know everything. You di- having directly known everything, you understand everything. Having understood everything, whatever you feel, whether pleasant, painful or neutral, um, the mind abides contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating uh, fading away, uh, viraga, contemplating cessation, uh, niroda and relinquishment, vosaga. And so that, um, that uh, uh, again, as I mentioned a few days ago, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa said, you know, this is the, uh, you can sum up the entirety of the Buddha's teaching in those four words, sabe, dhamma, nalang, abhinivesaya. And uh, so, and he he, he mentioned he said that uh, many times that the, the whole of the entire Buddha's teaching you can sum up. Don't cling to anything. And then uh, uh, I think uh, when I, I had the chance to spend a couple of weeks at, at Sornmolk in 1988, and uh, and he said he was talking about that phrase. He said, actually, I said uh, that you can summarize the whole Buddha's teaching in four words. You can take it down to three if you really try. And then the three words are in English: "Don't be selfish." That's, so you can get it down to three words. <laughs> That's the essence of it. So there's a lot there. Any uh, questions, thoughts, reflections? Don't be shy. Yes. Adrian, how helpful do you think that kind of teaching is in terms of the Vimalakuti um, Sutta, where you know, because it says things like you know. Um, He's like safe, safe, safe refuge, for instance, and obviously on the kind of way to being, you know, having completely let go of, go of everything, it's quite helpful to have like uh, supporting conditions, and, mm-hmm. and so like um, maybe the audience is very more therapeutic, so maybe they need need that. But, uh, for the average, you know, average practitioner, they like a chair. Yeah, like a chair, <laughs> you know, warm clothes. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, I think that um, that kind of uh, sutra, and also like uh, also, I'm reminded of the Heart Sutra. They are that they're, they're giving a particular message to uh, uh, to not be um, the, not to not let the mind be taken up with. Uh, unconscious kinds of attachment, so it's like things that we would think generally think of as, as sort of good, and oh, that should be held on to, like the Four Noble Truths, or uh, taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. It's saying, well, make sure that it's not just the idea of it, or just the words of it, or just the the, the formers, the structure of it. That uh, that you know, notice how easily the mind attaches to the forms, and uh, in the Heart Sutra it says um, there is. Uh, uh, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, uh, form is not separate from emptiness, emptiness is not separate from form, and so too with feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. And, and then it says, there is no suffering, no origination, no cessation, and no, 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 uh, no way. Um, and there's no understanding and no attaining, there is nothing to, nothing to be attained. And so that it's sort of emptying everything out. Um, and uh, say, uh, highlighting that as a perspective, because the mind easily just takes the idea of of uh, liberation, or takes the idea of of uh, you know, letting go or something, you know, the path, and we hang on to the idea and we're not actualizing it. So that the it's like a skillful means, um, and uh, uh, the one of the interesting things with the, with the heart truths also. To, uh, the, the Bodhisattva vows, speaking again about the Northern tradition, that I, I've stayed in quite a lot of different um, monasteries and centers, Zen centers and Tibetan, Chinese, Vietnamese uh, places, and uh, very, very often in the daily puja, you have both the Heart Sutra being recited, in usually like in Chinese or Japanese or Tibetan and so on, but you have the Heart Sutra and the, the Bodhisattva vows, and uh, there's a very interesting sutra in the in the Chinese um, where it points out how the Bodhisattva vows are deliberate extensions of the Four Noble Truths. That each of the four Bodhisattva vows is like a 
taking the, each of the Four Noble Truths and, and extending it out to relate not just to this being and this mind but to, to all beings. So like there is Dukkha is all beings are, are experiencing suffering. You know, if afflictions are limitless. Uh, or living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. This is the first Bodhisattva vow. And then afflictions are limitless, I vow to cut them all off. So that's like the, this is the cause of Dukkha is uh, afflictions. And then the um, truths number three and four are, are switched around. So in the Bodhisattva vows you have um, uh, Dharma doors are, are limitless, I vow to enter them all is the Eightfold Path. And then the Buddha way is supreme, I vow to accomplish it. That's the the equivalent of the third noble truth, the Dukkha Niroda, is, is to be realized. So, and you have those two side by side in the puja. So there is no suffering, no origination, no cessation, and no way. And then all beings are suffering. <laughs> Am I going to say them all? You know, afflictions are limitless. Uh, you know, not only are there, are there afflictions, they're, they're limitless. They're uncountable. So it's of one that says, you know, these uh, these four noble truths. They're empty. They're empty. Don't attach them. And the others are these four noble truths. They apply to all beings as much as to your to yourself, to just as to one individual. And so, to me, it's a it's a uh, a um, a different skillful means, different upaya. You know the word upaya? It's the different upayas of taking the Four Noble Truths and both seeing that they're, they are, and like, like Lumpur Samedi would say, they're not absolute truths, they're relative truths, that's why they're called noble. They're relative truths that lead to liberation. That's why they're called noble rather than absolute truths. They're, they're conditioned uh, and formed, they are conventional truths, but they're noble in that they're, if they're followed and developed, then they, they lead to, to realization of, of the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, and that which is, uh, is, is uh, unconditioned. So that uh, it's a way of, of taking the Four Noble Truths and recognizing that, yes, they are they're relative truths, they're, they are, uh, they're not absolutes, but uh, but also, and they don't need to be just confined to this one life. That to recollect that the, 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 these principles can be applied to a, a much broader sphere, a much broader uh, uh, range of of the universe than just this this one life. So that it's like a, a skillful means of reflecting on on the four noble truths as both being empty and being universal. So it's like a uh, a, a skillful way of taking the contemplation of those those truths and working with them. Yes. Would then be this, then the same true for what Ibu said that you should not take, be interested in anything? Because when I hear that, my little ego goes, in a long way, I'm a curious creature. And I like to explore things, so, <laughs> so you know, you should not be interested in anything. It feels like a, it could just switch off and just don't, you know. So is it is it is it the same thing of um, not being interested in a sense of understanding that that is anything will not bring freedom <laughs> from suffering. But can be used as skillful means. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, yeah, I, I, I somewhat question Robert Thurman. I mean, he's a much far more accomplished scholar than me, but, but I mean, like, like orders of magnitude. But uh, I did question his translation, uh, the, the wording he uses, um, because I, I, that uh, so sabe dama nalang abhinivesaya. That is uh, abhinivesaya is like a. Uh, relishing or taking hold of, or, or, or there's a there's a sort of mm, that interest isn't just paying attention to or the chanda interest, but there's a that uh, that relishing is a good word, that, and so that that um, uh, that because um, it, it's got that that sort of tensing or, or the mind looking at the world of things. I mean, I also am very interested in the, in many things. I'm sure I've got far more books in my living place than you have. <laughs> I haven't got quite as many as the library, but the, 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 you know that uh, my mind appreciates things and, and interested in lots of uh, different things. But that 
it's that relishing of I will be incomplete if I don't have this information or, or if I, I need to know about X or I want to be um, I want to, to have this so that that uh, re- uh, in, in essence rec- uh, recognizing things like and also in that f- the, the way the phrase is formed it is kind of maybe Thur- Robert Thurman did, did it on purpose but he he, literally, he deliberately says if you are interested in the Dharma you should take no interest in anything so also he says you know the Dharma is not an object so that if you're interested in the Dharma you know, like if you're paying if, if that's what you're giving your attention to then you should take no interest in in uh, you should take no interest in in anything yeah so that there it's like uh, that the, if the mind is is uh, endeavoring to pay full attention or be fully aware of its fundamental nature then notice how the the attention drifts from that and gets uh, looks for for um gratification or, or um, uh, completion in the world of things and so that it's and, it, and it's another way of saying sabe sankara dukkha you know all conditioned things are unsatisfactory uh, but it doesn't mean that we sort of discard or dismiss or, or or go numb in the in the, the face of uh, of the world of things I mean that's what the Buddha said you know all conditioned things are are, are unsatisfactory but he spent 45 years after his enlightenment <laughs> Juggling uh, the the world of conditioned things, uh, taking action, speaking, going to different places, relating, relating to different people, um, but it's that the attitude of relating to the world of of things, uh, participating in the world of of things and actions and information, uh, activity, but without that grasping attitude or without th- without that sense that this thing is going to complete me or I've got to get rid of this thing otherwise I will be burdened it's like and I feel also that's the 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 touching of the earth at the Buddha's enlightenment that is, is a gesture of being uh, of, of humility and being open to the world of things and saying that the, the world of things is totally acceptable how could it really limit the reality of, of the Dhamma so it doesn't have to be kept at bay, or doesn't have to be rejected or dismissed, and so that that uh, uh, you know that that symbol can be read in different ways. But I, I feel that's a it, it's a way of representing that quality of t- attunement to the world of things without being limited or defined by the world of things. So to carry on. Oh, sorry, yes. Could it be that Buddha um, was uh, saying let go of everything, but to someone that had the conditionality, just by saying that word to let go, and not like um, normally, um, like we should not let go of practice or whatnot, <laughs> so it's just. Uh, um, to that condition only. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Lumpur Cha used to speak about this very often. He said, because people would ask that same question very regularly, say, so, should we, you know, let go of the Dhamma and the Vinaya and, uh, you know, how do we do anything? And he, so he would say, well, to, to let go doesn't mean to not do anything. And he would uh, usually sort of pick up something, uh, often it was like a, a, a flashlight or a... Say you know that. Say if you if you need a box of tissues, I mean, <laughs> just using this example, then you can you know pick it up. You hold it when you don't need to hold it anymore. Then you put it down. So the picking up and holding, there's no problem with that. Um, if you need to pick something up, you you take hold of it, you use it, and then when you don't need it anymore, you put it down. Like a, and he would use it like a flashlight or a glass of water, and say, so it's holding without learning how to hold without grasping that's uh, so letting go doesn't mean never holding anything but uh, it means uh, not saying you know, this is my glass of water this is this is uh, this belongs to me and uh, and, I, and I'm going to keep it you know. so that now it's me I've kept that bit uh, um, so that uh, 
it's it's that essentially that that balance of um, both being the the transcendent aspect of the mind that is that uh, and uh, um, that is seeing that you know all things are empty all things are unsatisfactory but also the the uh, the aspect of mind that's attuned to the conditioned world that is um, that uh, relating to the pe- uh, people and things sight sound smell taste touch in a in a skillful and uh, and mindful way and uh, a, a few days ago i think i mentioned that exchange between uh, lumpur and lumpur cha and the young ajahn sumato and he said one day, you know, Samedo, you must be confused. And you know, why is that important? Said, well, because the Dhamma is all about letting go, but the Vinaya is all about holding on. Like, do this, don't do that. This is the right way to sit, the right way to to fold your sitting cloth, the right way to pick up your yarn and carry it around, and so on. And there's the wrong way to do things. And uh, and so uh, the young Ajahn Samedo said, "Yes, Lumpur, that that's right. That is that is confusing." And uh, and he thought Lumpur was going to give a. He had the feeling he was going to give a like an extensive dhamma talk about how the you know how to understand that. But all that Lumpur Chah said was, "When you when you figure out how those work together, you'll be fine." <laughs> so that that you know the dhamma is is the is the transcendent side, and the, and the vinaya is the 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 lok, uh, the lokiya, the worldly side, and they they work together. It's the dhamma vinaya is the the legacy that we have inherited, and so that um, that is, in many respects, is the middle way. Is is how that recognizing the the conventional truth and 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 ultimate truth, how they the uh, samuti sacha and paramata sacha, how they how they work together. And that's our, our daily practice. Then we won't let go. go. So, and sometimes if someone is attached to the teacher, sometimes it's useful for him in one way. So, or it can be, but uh, it, it depends. Uh, so, just like uh, like anything, it's like if it's if the weather's cold, it's good to be attached to your hat. Otherwise, you'll get a cold head. You know, <laughs> if you lose your hat, your head will get cold. It's kind of yes. There's a certain, um, but then. Uh, if you've uh, if you've lost your hat and you don't know where it is, okay, well that's not my hat anymore. Let's see if I can find another one. And so uh, that you you have to um, recognize that yeah, the, the things that we we like to to own or draw or have around, they aren't ultimately under our control. And so that they're um, so that. The more that attachment is based on grasping and, and clinging, then it'll produce suffering. If the attachment is is without grasping, it's like uh, you know. I mean, like people would. I'm not not trying to boast, but people would say when when Lumpur Sumedha wasn't living here, he's back in Thailand, and say, "Oh, do you miss do you miss Lumpur?" And I say, "No." Yeah. Oh, don't you care about him? Yeah, I care about him greatly. You know, greatly, he's my teacher, and I revere him and uh, love him profoundly. Don't you miss him? No. Like you know, sometimes I'm not sort of making fun of people or trying to put anyone on the spot. I said that to him, <laughs> but uh, it, it's like you can you can love someone and appreciate them and, and revere them as a teacher, but not be possessive of them. It was great that Nampo has come to visit here, and come to to stay here, and not just be visiting, to be living here. It's fantastic. But uh, you know, this year he's aiming to be away for about six months. And so I I won't miss him when he's not here. Because the Venerable has a lot of wisdom. So, like, finally we let go of everything, hopefully. But the question was that if Venerable, the the Buddha, maybe could have, like, just said to someone, and this person, or let go of the body, this person let go of the body, let go of the mind. Go the mind, you know, and just uh, te- uses the suttas techniques of liberating people's heart. 
No, I mean, I mean that sometimes the Buddha gives a teaching, and like the the very first uh, discourse in the uh, the Majjhimanikaya, he said the 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 bhikkhus were not delighted at the blessed one's words, like they they disagree. Like that's sutta number one in this in the Majjhima. The, they did not like to hear what the Buddha said. <laughs> so yes, uh, you know they. The teaching, someone can say, let go, and somebody can hear that and go, yes, wow, of course, and, and, then, and then let go of everything, and so become an arahant on the spot. So sometimes that does occur in the in the teachings. It's, but the person has to have the barometer and the, have to sort of be pre-cooked, you know, like just, just add hot water and serve. You know, <laughs> the kind of, if they're not pre-cooked, then it's like, let go. Who are you to tell me to let go? I'm not holding on to anything. Get out of here. Like, and then, yeah, that's, they carry on in their own sweet way. So it, all, it depends on the, um, the, poten- the, the potential of the, of the person who's listening. Okay, so to continue. And the next section is called Feeling Conditions Craving, Exile from the Garden. When we look at the links of dependent origination, the first four of these, ignorance, formations, consciousness, mind and body, can be seen to set up the subject-object duality, the feeling of me and the world, quote-unquote. The next three, the six sense spheres, sense contact and, uh, and feeling, salayatana pasavedana, describe the, the arising of a particular sense event, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, or thinking something in particular. This brings us to the realm of feeling, Vedana, or sensation. Uh, also, um, so salayatana, sal means six, uh, uh, ayatana is a, uh, oftentimes, so the six sense spheres or sense bases. So ayatana is another word you can't really completely translate into English. Um, uh, and but it's a it's a very helpful very useful word. So it, when in the Udana, uh, the book of the the eighth chapter of the Udana, um, the first sutta, the uh, the the way to the beyond, I think. No, that's the sorry the, the eighth chapter, the pa, uh, uh, what's it called, um, Pakati village. Anyway, chapter eight of the, of the Udana. Um, where it says there is that that ayatana where there is uh, no sun, no moon, no stars, no coming, no going, no standing still, no dying, no reappearance, and so on and so forth. So that the word where it says there is that sphere of being or that that realm, uh, ayatana is the word that's used there. Uh, that sort of so it can even refer to a transcendent. The, uh, the word ayatana can refer to a transcendent quality. So that's. Uh, it's it's not just related to, to condition things, but uh, there is that in that particular in that particularly in that sutta in, in the Udana, there is that ayatana, that sphere of being or that dimension uh, wherein there is no coming, no going, no standing still. So that's a, it's a but uh, the uh, uh, salayatana, the six uh, sense spheres. So that's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. The sixth sense bases are ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. When things have reached this stage, it can still be very simple. The mind can still be clear and peaceful while there, while there is contact and feeling. Consider enlightened beings like the Buddha. They see, they hear, they smell, they taste, they touch, they feel. That realm of perception and feeling can be completely free of suffering and difficulty. And uh, in the next chapter also, I'll talk about that um, as represented by uh, one of the teachings in the um, a very a very helpful sutta to get to know in the book of the tens in the uh, numerical discourses sutta number 53 58 <laughs> Let's see what is it uh, sutta yeah, book of the tens sutta 58 so we'll get to that in the next chapter but uh, where it talks about how feeling uh, doesn't have to condition craving.
So this this next section is um, uh, I would put under the category of speculative. This is Amaro joining up the dots. The great tradition of, of randomly joining up dots in religious um, uh, textual exploration. And so, uh, so please take this with as much salt as you like, if salt is part of your diet. But anyway, I'll, uh, I'll go through this um, for people's contemplation. When I first began to look closely into Paticca Samuppada, I was confounded by a number of its mysteries. I couldn't work out what the whole pattern was referring to. With a vague memory in mind, and intrigued by how ignorance, or innocence, Desire and suffering seemed to be themes in common. I searched out a copy of the Bible and found in the first chapter of Genesis a mythical Judaic version of the Paticca Samuppada. Again, this is not canonical or definitive take on things, but it's a, uh, particularly for people who come from a Judeo-Christian conditioned background, this might be interesting, valuable. One can reflect that this process, described so thoroughly in the Pali Canon, is related to that primal theme of the Bible. The realm of feeling is like life in the Garden of Eden. It can be very pleasant and very simple. The trouble begins when Tanha shows up. That's the serpent. What dependent origination describes is the emergence of suffering out of perfection. The emergence of pain and difficulty out of that which is pure and whole. So uh, and, you know, I was talking about how with um, how, uh, um, say, Venerable Ajahn Man would say you know, that uh, 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 everything has a father and mother, and the, 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 uh, the father and mother of ignorance is the primal mind. Titi Bhutang. Yeah. So, the way the King James Version of the Bible begins is, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, quote-unquote. But I feel that what is meant is more along the lines of it is out of God, out of perfect unity, ultimate reality, that division emerges. I should explain a little how I arrived at this. I found that this phrase, in the beginning, in reflective experience, suggested to me when a pattern appears, when the experience of a thing begins, there emerges self and other, subject and object, this and that. Heaven, quote-unquote, in this respect, represents that which is elsewhere. Earth, quote-unquote, that which is here. That division between here and there, subject and object, occurs when something begins and is known, when a world comes into being. After the heavens and the earth are created, there are a series of images, beginning with, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, quote-unquote. We can look at this part of the process as the arrival of consciousness. This consciousness is established in relationship to the world, just as vijnana and nama-rupa lean upon each other and form a reciprocal relationship. That means affecting each other or conditioning each other. That vijnana-nama-rupa vortex mentioned earlier. In this world, the land and the waters are created, as well as all of the animals and creatures. This we can see as signifying the development of materiality and mentality, bodies and minds, this leading on to salayatana, the six sense spheres and their functions, the different ways of perceiving the world and living and of living life, different ways of being. This is comparable to sense contact, pasa. Then there's the arising of humanity, Adam and Eve, man and woman, and their life together in the garden. This takes us up to the point of sensation or feeling which is unself-conscious. So again, this is all very speculative, tentative, and, and up for reflection, consideration. So please don't take this as anything definitive, but just how these patterns took shape. And uh, so to continue. Now, it is at this turn that the serpent comes along, and it represents, understandably enough, temptation or desire, tanha. Desire comes along and says, here's the tree of knowledge standing right in the middle of the garden. You could help yourself. There is more to life than just being in the garden like this, you know. The snake has its charms, and soon desire turns into clinging, as Eve and Adam eat the fruit of the tree. From this follows becoming. As knowledge and self-consciousness arise, then comes rebirth, 
Suddenly Adam and Eve realize that they are naked. There's the shock of birth as the master appears on the scene. Adam, where are you? That's the appearance in the, when God shows up in the garden and starts looking for his creations. Adam, where are you? Oh God. <laughs> Pun intended. The natural consequence of the moment of birth, when Adam and Eve are discovered, is represented as God's judgment and punishment he puts upon them. So they find themselves driven out of Eden, exiled from the garden, sensitive, open, separated, and subject to all kinds of suffering. They are born into the world feeling heat and cold, hunger, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, quote-unquote. Or, to paraphrase Genesis chapter 3, all the days of your lives you will toil with sweat and bring forth children in pain. So that's my little thesis on <laughs> Genesis and the Petitia Samupada. So please ignore if that's confusing or makes uh, uh, or you feel it's totally erroneous or uh, unhelpful. But uh, it's basically the see the relationship between ignorance, craving, and dukkha. I think it's a it's a mythological representation of uh, of uh, the same that um, uh, I would suggest. In the realm of feeling, there can be a lot of clarity and wisdom. There's the body and the life of the senses. And then the experience of feeling, pleasant, painful, or neutral. That on its own doesn't cause any difficulty at all. It's very simple, and the heart can be completely awake and at peace with it. But the stronger the influence of ignorance, not seeing clearly, the lack of wisdom, the lack of mindfulness, the more that the mind will believe in those feelings of liking, disliking, and neutral feeling, and will tend to be intoxicated by them. If there is a lack of mindfulness and wisdom, then... When there is a feeling of dislike, it turns easily into, I hate it, I can't stand it, I've got to get away from this. Similarly, if it's an experience of liking, and if there is a lack of mindfulness and wisdom, then the liking turns into, oh, this is great, I want this, I've got to have this, and the mind chases after that desire object. Any questions, thoughts? Don't be shy. Okay, very good. Once the mind crosses that bridge between feeling and craving, between Vedana and Tanha, then it becomes more and more difficult to turn back. Maybe a better image is getting onto a train. While you're standing on the platform at the station, you can still decide where you want to go, which train you want to board, to Paris or Milan. Or maybe we're happy just staying here on the platform. But once we get on that train and it starts to move, we follow that desire and there's an engagement with that object. So standing on the platform is equivalent to the Vedana domain. So once we've got on the train and it starts to move, we've followed that desire and there is an engagement with that object. While the train is still going slowly, maybe you could force the door open and jump out, although you would get some bumps and bruises. But once the train is up to full speed, you can't jump off. That is jati, birth. Also, this is a, a bit of a, an outdated example because you can't open train doors once the train's moving nowadays. But back in the old days, those of us who remember when you could open a train door and fall out, uh, and that, uh, that applies. But uh, nowadays, it's uh, well, most trains in most countries, you can't open the, the doors. I think maybe in Thailand, the, the trains are so old, <laughs> you can still easily open the doors and fall out. So that Thailand is famous for its ancient train uh, train carriages um, but they still work but they, they're old so uh, that is jati birth so the easiest thing to do is to be mindful while you're still standing on the platform do i want to get on this train or do i not if we develop mindfulness of feeling being aware of the experience of liking disliking uh, and of neutral feeling then this can make life much simpler we recognize that we can like something without wanting it, or we can dislike something without hating it, or we can have neutral feelings towards something without nursing any opinion at all about it. In that way, we give ourselves a great deal of freedom in life. Once we have plucked that fruit from the tree, it cannot be put back on the branch, so we become limited by the results of that act. Our freedom is lost.
Um, so uh, it's one of the things that we often don't realize is that we don't have to have opinions. Um, and so th this is, uh, I found particularly uh, here in the UK as well, but particularly living in, in America, which uh, I've lived there for uh, you know, 15 years or so, and visiting for, for longer still, that uh, people would often ask you, well, what do you think about George Bush? And I usually say, I don't think about George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you must have an opinion. I said, well, why, why must I? I, said, I don't think about him. Well, you know. Uh, and so that, and, and so sometimes it, it's we forget that we can just say, you know, well, you know what, what do you feel about Mahayana Buddhism? He said, well, I don't feel anything about it. Uh, well, you must have, you must feel something. Said, well, no, I mustn't. <laughs> or you know, whatever it might be in in a, in the family in a, in a family circle, the things that people are excited about or upset about. That oftentimes when people say, well, what do you think about this or what do you feel about that? It's quite legal to say, I don't think about it. I mean, it should be lying, you know, obviously, <laughs> don't lie. But uh, if you don't have any feelings or an opinion, it's totally okay to say, I don't have an opinion. And it's, it's interesting how when, when uh, very, many and various things, not just politics, but all sorts of areas of life, and I say, oh, well, I don't really have an opinion about that. So, or what's your favorite food? You say, um, the food that's in my bowl. That's my, you know, <laughs> that's much more interesting than the food that's in Venerable Dhammavijaya's bottle. <laughs> that's, the, that's my favourite food, is the food that I'm, I'm eating. So, and they, but no, but what's, what's your favourite food? That, uh, I, I don't, I, uh, I don't have a favourite. Why, why, you know, well, you must have. Well, no, I mustn't. <laughs> And just uh, to be, uh, not to be swept up by people's expectations, but you know, not to be sort of too clever. I mean, it's easy to be a bit too clever. But uh, just to recognize that you have the space not to have an opinion about things. And so uh, this reflection on standing on the platform, and whether you get on a thing. Uh, because sometimes people just, they're, they're, they're just looking for a sense of interaction. I mean, not to be sort of cold and sort of rigid or remote, but sometimes... Uh, people they just want to engage with you and, and sort of get get something going and um and so that uh you, but we don't have to be part of that you don't have to join in with that if you because you can find yourself sometimes you, you just someone you just say blue they say well red red's actually much better i really like red Red is really, really much better. Don't you know? Don't, don't you think red's got a lot going for it? Yeah, red's okay. But really, I prefer blue. It's like, okay. If you see what I mean, the kind of people just put things out, looking for some kind of a comment or a reaction or a a, a, a response. And really, what they want is just um, to feel like they are, <laughs> they, they exist. It's sort of if you're familiar with that book, I'm okay, you're okay by uh, Eric Byrne, was it? Eric Byrne, I'm okay, you're okay. That, that's the, the uh, and it, so it's, it's quite okay to, quite okay, <laughs> to communicate, just to be sort of friendly and open to people. But oftentimes, I, I don't know about all of you, but I would over and over again find myself in some kind of discussion. I, I don't really care about this. I'm not really interested. How do I get involved in this? You know, like... Uh, Someone saying, you know, so what football team do you support? <laughs> I, uh, that's that's not something I think about. Oh, come on, now, what, I mean, uh, when, when you were when you were young, what football? What was your what was your football team? But, yes, got no interest in, at all for you, but you find yourself sort of drawn into it. And kind of, uh, you say, well, you know, Crystal Palace, they they you know, they 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 got this this weird rivalry with Brighton. Yeah. Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, you know, it's quite okay, but it's like, why? Uh, you're not particularly interested in the whole field. But it's really just a way of, here we are together, let's spend some time in each other's company, and we're just using the football teams and their interrelationship. It may have been Mitch. It wasn't. Oh, someone different. Someone different. <laughs> So, but it's often just a, a way of, of just 
I'm okay, you're okay, uh, 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 am I really okay? Yeah, yeah, you're okay. Do you think I'm okay? Yeah, I think you're okay too. So we're both okay. Okay, that's good. And that's the, the sort of the, the undercurrent. That's all you're saying, really. But on the surface level, you're talking about what's on the television or polit- you know, political figures or, uh, or you know, the, uh, all kinds of, of stuff. So it's just being mindful of those kind of dynamics and realizing that I don't have to join in or I don't have to... To, I'm not being unkind if I'm not uh, participating in the opinion opinion exchange. <laughs> but, uh, it's uh, it's so easy to be drawn into that uh, uh, unconsciously. So it's gone past seven o'clock again. The time has gone by. Um, so let's just leave it there for now. Yes. Andamayang dhamma vadakataya sadhu karanda dhamase sadhu sadhu